So depending depending on when this comes out, I will have graduated from seminary. And I don't say that necessarily to toot my own horn, right? But I do say that because there are a couple of things I was going to mention that I've learned through the process of being in seminary. And for a little bit of context, um, it started out as pretty hybrid, right? So I would see the professor a couple times a year, maybe in person, maybe through Zoom, um, a local church here in Charleston. And the rest would really be self-learning. And that would that was good and and as far as it went, right? It served a purpose. So the second half, I decided, let's do this all online to finish off the degree. So I've been an online student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, there's a couple things I've picked up that may be interesting for someone who's wondered what it's like to go to seminary um, and uh, what it's like to to consider whether or not you actually want to partake in something like that. Um, so I listed just seven things, and there are no particular order. Uh, no particular of importance, but they are things I've I've come away thinking, looking at myself before I started compared to now, and some of the things I picked up. The first one was, you become a reader, and I grew up in a homeschool family, so reading has always been like front and certain certain for us, um, very very important as a homeschool family. But when you go to seminary, my average class, which was eight weeks long, required a thousand pages per course. And I, at the height, I took three classes at a time. So that's 3,000 pages, right? So roughly if, if a book is 200 pages um, in length, that's what, 15 different books right? in eight weeks. Some, some were longer than that, some were shorter than that, so it varied. But there was absolutely no way to keep up with the coursework to get a good grade to even pass the class if you did not keep up with the reading because you had quizzes on those, tests on those, book reviews on those, essays on those, finals on those, uh, material that found in the books. So one of the things I really delved into pretty heavily was reading. And I'm hoping that... Uh, the breakneck pace at which I was reading continues afterwards. Now, the different differences, and I was talking to someone about this the other day, the difference is, in terms of reading, with seminary, you're assigned your books, right? So it may not be the book you would have chosen. If you went to your bookshelf and said, you know what, this is what I want to read about, it probably wouldn't have been that book. There are a lot of books that I read in seminary that I was like, man, the only reason I would ever have read this is if it was assigned to me. It was awful. At the same time, there's also several books I had never knew existed or I didn't know the authors or anything like that. And I came away thinking, man, that was a really good book. And so I went and explored other authors from that section or from that genre. And so that was that was the first one that I came away with is that you become a reader. I think uh, for me, that's definitely sounds challenging because <laughs> I did not, I'm like the opposite of you in terms of reading. Like we talked about this before I read like one book, uh, <laughs> we talked about this before, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for Anthony's uh, kind of selected um, 
fiction, you know, for the importance for the Christian. Um, like one book growing up that I really remember and just cliff noted stuff and wasn't interested in it. And uh, that'd definitely be like a major challenge. So like thinking in preparation or trying to work through something like that, uh, especially if you were going to be interested in it. But, you know, the value of it, I remember listening to Doug Wilson talk about his initial dedication to reading and how that's carried over. Is he like at two two books a week? Something ridiculous. Yeah, it's some, and he's kept with it though. Like he mm. set a set like a high goal, and then maybe even has went up to that. Mm. But when you listen to him talk, I think the advantage of the reading is that ideally you are able to speak to people. We can sit down and talk, and I can pick your brain and then learn things from you. I mean, even if none of us are experts, we still do things that you can learn from plot other areas. So if you read someone that's worth reading. Um, even if you're not particularly interested in their style or, or whatever, they vary from you, there would be things you could pick up from them. And so over time, the benefit of reading would seem to be you've read books you didn't like, you know, maybe didn't think they're a good author and you wouldn't have normally read them, but it has in some way broadened your scope, which is probably the intention of the professor. And so when you see that played out with men that have read a lot, man, it's just like the stuff they can pull out of nowhere. <laughs> He's like, oh, well, you know, I, thinking about this from that. Right. I never, I mean, how would you even know that stuff if you didn't dedicate time to that? Yeah. And it teaches you to read well, too, because there's a difference between reading and reading well. I can read a book and forget everything that I just read because I didn't pay attention properly. I didn't focus on certain issues. But when your grade depends on it, every word counts, right? How he describes, say, Eutychianism or one of the heresies, you know, you're going to have to write a paper on that or you're going to have to take a test on that. You have to know the ins and outs of whatever your author is writing about. It's not, it's not something like a daily reader or a Bernard book or anything like that where you can just read for fun and enjoyment, which was one of the, the, one of the reasons why it makes it very difficult in that environment to read books you don't want to read, but you have to pay extra attention to those books too. So it really broadened my, my area of reading. And I think there's something to that too in that um, reading books that you don't want to read it's like a uh it's like a workout that you really don't want to do mm-hmm. um i'm obviously in peak physical fitness right now yes as we all are right uh, but a workout that you don't really want to do are in maybe not physically but mentally is some sometimes it's the best workout for you because you broke through that wall and you and you did the thing that you needed to do so maybe you don't retain as much intellectually from the book that you don't want to read because you didn't enjoy it, but you broke through that mental barrier to read the thing that you had to, to read. And I think there's some, there's a, there's a sermon in there somewhere about just responsibility as a whole. You know, when you have a responsibility and you don't want to, I don't know, pick your, pick whatever it is. You don't want to do whatever thing it is that you have to do. And you break through that barrier mentally and you do the thing that's required of you or do the thing that, that that's, that's asked of you. And another thought as you were talking is that um, God gave his people a book. I think we talked a little bit about this when we talked about fiction. Uh, God gave his people a book to read. Uh, Piper, There's a clip from a Piper sermon somewhere where he says, God very well could have given us a video. You know, He could have given us a, a song. He could have given us um, an interpretive dance. You know, God could have given us any, any medium he wanted to, his special revelation to come through. And he chose in his providence and in his wisdom, he chose a book. And so if you want to know God, tole lege, pick up and read and read that book. And so being able to read, um, 
because you've mentally now read a book that you didn't like for whatever reason, um, you know, okay, I, I could probably, I think I could sit down and read numbers and get through numbers. I could, yeah, I could get down and I could read Leviticus in an afternoon and do it. And it would be difficult, but it's really important that I do this because it's, because it's the scripture and God put it there for, for a reason. So it can help in your Bible reading in that way, I think, which is super important. That's a good point. So one of the second things I've learned, um, it's almost like a bell graph, right? So it starts off slow, peaks, and then comes back down basically where it started. And that's how it was with knowledge. I started seminary thinking, man, I don't know a thing, right? And as time went on, classes, more reading, more studying. I reached a point where I was like, got it. I have this down. You know, there's nothing I don't know. I've taken all these classes. There's, I've got it. And the more you study, the more you read, the more lectures you listen to, you come back to that place you started and you realize, I just scratched the surface. There's so much more to be discovered, to understand that I have no idea about. And if I spend a lifetime studying, I still will not know it all. So you, you can really start off in a place of um, pessimistic, uh, almost depressive mentality where you are basically feel dumb, right? As you learn this stuff, because mm-hmm. there's so much knowledge out there and you can reach a point where you feel really haughty and it, and that point is very short lived. At least it was for me because it, as soon as that happens, you're humiliated, you know, when you see your exam or something you're like, gosh, I don't know a thing. And so it brings you right back down to where you started. And that was, that was my experience as well. Um, it's almost like the cage stage that people talk about with Calvinism, right? People see, at least in my experience, at least I observed others who went to seminary in certain context as, man, they must know a lot. But if you were to ask any one of them, I guarantee you, any one of them who really took it seriously, they would tell you, man, I just did a little more in-depth study than you did. It's, there's so much more out there that we have to, to discover and study. I think it was Einstein that said, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know, mm-hmm. or something to that effect. That's not verbatim. Um, and there's... There's something that curve that translates that graph that you're describing that translates professionally. You know, working in working in medicine, you st- you go to school, you go to RT school, or you go to nursing school, or whatever it is, and you think, man, I don't really know, I don't know jack. And then you get through school and you graduate and you do whatever and you got your first job and you're like, bro, I got this, right? Like I I passed my class, I've graduated, I sat for boards, I passed, I know everything that's going on. And then you you run your first code or you have your first, uh, have to call your first rapid response or, or whatever it is, or you're just in a situation that you weren't prepared for and you realize, man, that 11 months of school or that, two, was it two years? Yeah, or that two years of school, whatever it was, didn't really uh, prepare me for this field and I still have so much learning to do. I talked to a nurse prac one time. He's an ER nurse prac and he told me, he said, man, you'll learn more in your first six months on the floor than you learn in your 11-month program. And that was super true. And I feel like there's so much that I've learned. In July, I'll make two years that I've been a nurse. And there's so much more that I've learned on the floor that I just couldn't have been taught in, in, the, in the classroom. Um, so I'll say all that to say I think there's, uh, there's, there's definitely a truth there that resonates with me. I've never been to seminary, um, but there's a truth there that resonates. And, and I, think when, I think when you go through that enough times, um, some people maybe have to go through it 12 times. Some people, they go through the first time. I, 
you go through that enough times in your life, you eventually learn to just stay humble and, and stay hungry too. When I got my first, when I got my, this job that I have now, um, and I remember sitting down talking to the manager because she just wanted to meet the new hires. There were two, three, four of us that got hired all within the same two weeks of each other. And she said, she asked me how the first couple of weeks were going. And I told her, I said, I'm just, I said, I know that I've graduated. I know I graduated school and I know that I passed my boards and I know that I'm a licensed nurse. And I said, but I, I've started day one, like I don't know anything, you know, and I've started day one as if I'm just, I'm just here to learn. And I think you have to have that mentality. You, you have to carry that mentality with you every day. I think almost in every area of your, of your life. I think as professionally as a nurse, I think as, as you interact with people, like you think you might have a good read on people and how to minister to people and how to care for people, but you have to take that a day at a time. Um, being a dad is, I mean, legitimately every day. I'm like, it's a, I'm, I'm going to learn something new about parenting today. I'm going to learn something new about my kids today. So it's a good, uh, what you're describing as your seminary experience is really good indicator just of people's experience throughout life, you know? It's funny because I was thinking of medical stuff too. <laughs> uh, I think we said it before, like Anthony, he, he works as a nurse in the same hospital that I work as a respiratory therapist. And I'm kind of thinking, I remember that experience as well, coming in, mm-hmm. thinking, questioning. But then now my thought is like, I work as a specialist, you know, yeah. not as from a general, but like managing the ventilator. And I see all these people that are either in residency or, you know, do, doing whatever. And then they try and say whatever to us. I'm just like, you're way too cocky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you know way more than you do about this. But, um, you know, that's like a professional sense or even a theological sense. And it, and it really makes me think, I heard somebody talking recently about America and how we seem to be so much more independent or, you know, even our views of like politics and stuff. But even to tie this over then to a pastor, imagine like, the congregation, really the reverence they should sort of have for their pastor, respect or deference, you know, whatever that, I mean, this is a guy that's actually studied the things Mm -hmm. and his weekly studying for the sermon. And if you have a, a guy that is humble, you know, but of course, but he is weekly studying, you know, he is seeking out not just his own holiness or his family, but the churches as well. And then, you know, you're the guy that comes up and just tries to challenge everything he says. I mean, what is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're you're on the wrong place on this curve or this spectrum. And that's probably a position, you know, that isn't related yeah. well to. And it's funny because people will do that with the mentality, going up to their pastor and challenging them, with the mentality of putting them in their place, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But they probably don't even realize he's been put in his place already through study. Mm-hmm. Um Third thing I had here is uh, uh, people will argue over the smallest details. Precision is a way to avoid it. And so I know in my experiences talking to the professors and looking over the materials and so forth that you are always, it seems like, one word away from heresy if you're not careful. And it goes down to even, the one, even to a letter. So if you think about the, um, the area in controversy with homoousius, and homo eusius. So that's for that the one letter different or one word, yeah, one letter difference, the I, which is a Greek letter iota. So not one iota is where we get that term. One letter can change you from same substance with the father to similar substance. And that's heresy. And I've noticed we do uh, a lot of 
forum discussions and um, I'm talking to some of the guys on there and um, if you if you're not careful if you say something out of line man they'll be the first to pounce on you right mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons one you can get you some points in your in your discussion right people take you serious this guy knows his stuff right look at him <laughs> not letting anything slide another thing it's, it's, it's again that cockiness the haughtiness too so you don't, whenever you want to correct someone you want to do it with the grace but a way to avoid needing correction in that way is to be very precise. And that requires a lot of study and it requires a lot of time given. And like you had said earlier, there's, there's a point in your life on certain subjects you're not an expert on. And if you don't understand it, be come from a position of humility, knowing that you're treading on ground that's new to you. Right. And so there's some areas in my life that I've looked back at, theologically speaking, even politically or economically speaking, where I'm unwilling to take a hard stance on it because I know how it can be and how I've changed my views through the years the more I study something. If you're not precise and if you just take things very vaguely and willy-nilly, you're going to end up in a lot of trouble, not only theologically speaking, but I mean this translates to even your job. Right. If you're talking to patients at the hospital and you're not precise, you need 10 milligrams or 10 cc's or whatever you're doing. You know, if you're not precise in those types of words, that's going to translate even to error, medical error. So that was one thing I did, you know, basically double check yourself all the time. Make sure you're not wandering away in any type of ideology. And I think one way you do that is um, knowing your confessions and knowing your uh, catechisms and knowing your creeds, things that I'm really weak on. Um, But I've... I've just become very adamant in the last uh, year or two about confessionalism um, because they're such good guards. And in our conversations with our pastor, you know, he says, I, I'll be, I'll get into like a Twitter dispute or whatever. And I'll send screenshots. Mm-hmm. He'll tell me, he'll say anything like you have the confessions, you've got Sproul, you've got these guys that you can go to and you can read that are going to keep you from, from these, from these errors, you know, stick to, Stick to the scriptures supremely, ultimately, of course, you know, but but and and trying to understand the scriptures, uh, stick to the confessions. And I tell people, like, man, if you don't, I'm not telling you that you have to be a Presbyterian. I mean, you should be, but I'm not telling you that you have to be. Obviously, you know, um, it, it would be better for you if you were, but you know, you're an adult, make your own decisions. Um, but man, like, if you're if you want to be a if you're going to be a Baptist, pick like find the thing that lines up with what you believe. And, and I think you should, you should subscribe to it. I think there's something there in subscription. You know, I, I subscribe to the man, I'm a Baptist and I really subscribe to the 1689, you know, or someone that says I'm a Baptist and, but I only insofar uh, the Baptist faith message, you know, like pick, pick a document that's been written by people that, that know the material, that know theology, pick that document and, and stick to that and refer to that as a way to kind of systematize your, Theology, you know, if we're going to run off of if, uh, if we're using medical stuff as a parallel, you know, there's all sorts of medical authorities that when a decision needs to be made in a medical situation, you can pull from different medical literature to say this is what we know that is this has come from experts and this is what we know is a safe practice. And so this is what we're this is what we're going to do. Uh, and think of uh, an, another example might be if you're building an engine or whatever, you know, and you want to build a certain model of an engine, you pull out that schematic, you pull out whatever it is, and that tells you how to build the engine and how to do it well and how to do it precisely. And so I think you need a way to help you in that precision. 
And if you're not look, if you're not utilizing documents, historical, tried and true, and tested documents that have lasted the church for for centuries, uh, you're missing out, and you're only doing yourself a disservice. Yeah, and it's true what you said. There's there's a tendency, especially in American evangelicalism, to to rush to a certain conclusion, mm-hmm. right? And and that doesn't that's not hidden for some reason. It's not hidden outside of theological camps either. It finds its way there too. And I find myself whether I'm writing a blog post or an essay or a paper or anything like that, that it's best if I, instead of trying to trying to rush and meet a deadline or trying to rush and meet a, a word count or something like that, it's best for me to take the extra effort, the extra time to be thorough and precise, right? Because I can put out a blog post like we're doing for our art and it can be messy if I'm not careful. It can cause confusion if I'm not careful. The end result should be clarity. And if that takes me an extra two hours to do so, that's worth it, right? I should never be so quick to put something out just because I want to be done. Mm-hmm. So precision's key. Um, another one I had here was uh, seminary is not just for future ministers. And my highest priority and outcome should be to be a better husband and father, not necessarily just a greater orator of the truth. So... When I started this journey of sorts, if it was, if the if the reason I did that was just to gain more knowledge, that was a really dumb reason, right? And if the end result after all of this is that I just gained more knowledge, well, I failed. If the if the truths that I learned about are not impacting my life in a deep and meaningful way, then I wasted a lot of money and a lot of time. I need to be able to take the truths that I learned about and use them to shape me to be a better husband, to be a better family man, a better churchman, a better friend, a better Christian. And if I'm not doing that, then seminary is of no use to me. And I also want to say that in terms of it not being just for future ministers, seminary, um, because I myself am not going to be a future minister, but I will be using that knowledge to help other Christians, I hope. And I will be using that knowledge to help my wife, I hope, and my future children, I hope. Um, but anyone could do seminary. And if the mentality for a lot of people, and Vody Bauckham talks about this, it's really good. But the lot of mentality is for young men who start seminary, they're obviously going to be pastors. And that's a mentality that needs to really stop. Vody Bauckham points out that in today's society, today's culture, especially in the church today, if you see a young man who takes interest in theology, the things of the Bible, we automatically, man, there's a future pastor right there. The standard for a young man who's a Christian and want to learn more about God and theology has dropped so low that when we see someone outside those ranks that is pursuing Christ and pursuing the knowledge of things about God, we automatically think he's not like us. He should be teaching us. He should be leading us like a pastor instead of this is an example of what every Christian should be doing. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's really hard because... Like I said, when people find out I'm in seminary, I'm taking seminary classes, they always say, oh, you're going to be a pastor, right? And even if they didn't know that, if I talk about some subject that's a theological subject or, you know, a little something's more weighty than, you know, say the love of God or something like that that has like more more, uh, turns and 
ladders and shoots and stuff like that you have to weave through, they automatically think, they say, are you a pastor, right? Are you a pastor's kid or something on those lines. And that is really just a snapshot of how far we've come in the American church. It's kind of like I've heard a term like anti-intellectualism. Yeah. This seems to be pretty rampant, you know? So then, of course, if you see someone that seems to be um, dialoguing or interacting on a deep or somewhat uh, intellectual level, you know, conversely, then that is their first thought. But it is sad because if, I mean, if God gave us minds to what end to worship him, and certainly even like Titus 1 talks about uh, how Paul is saying his his goal um, is for the knowledge uh, of the truth which accords to godliness. And so there's like a natural built-in when properly utilized or even understood knowledge should come to the end of godliness or holy living. Um, so, I mean, it's good to chase after. But then on the other side, like, if you don't study, how are you going to arrive at that end? Yeah. <laughs> if you don't have some level, that doesn't mean everybody has to be on this academic sure. level, but even on a devotional level or something, you have to get into the Scripture and study some or understand. Yeah. That should be the norm. Do you know more about God today than you did yesterday? Mm-hmm. So that's it's a, it's a big struggle. And and to be clear, too, when when I come out of seminary, my goal is not for people to say, wow, he finished seminary, right? My goal is for people to see me as, man, he just finished an extended Bible study. Because that's essentially what I've done. I've just devoted extra time to study God's Word and the attributes of God, things of theology and nature. That's it. I just took a little extra time to do that. There's nothing special. It wasn't for the graduation gifts? We'll talk about that on the Patreon. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, another one I have here is uh, some programs will prepare you for a doctorate degree or an extra graduate degree, but not for ministry. So I took a course um, that really opened my eyes to this, and... A lot of the courses that I took are standard. I would honestly consider them general ed courses for seminary, like systematic theology, church history, things like that. And those courses are good as far as they go. But some don't have the elements that are needed for people who's going to be in ministry. Because at the end of the day, I will be in ministry in terms of being a lay person in ministry, right? Everyone's going to give some sort of their life, if they're a Christian, to Christ and his church. But I won't be a pastor. We already talked about that. However, a lot of these courses, unless you're careful, you'll find that at the end of them, you know a lot, like we talked about, but you don't know how to implement that or to t- how to teach that or how to show that or how to help people understand that. Um, and so if someone's considering seminary, I would take that into consideration, your courses. So the one I chose was specifically for theological studies, right? There's other ones you could take across, this is across the nation, regardless of... Uh, denomination, affiliation. You can do ones on counseling. You can do ones on doctrine or apologetics, all these different emphases. And if I was a pastor or if I was preparing myself to be a pastor, that would be something I'd take in very strong consideration because at the end of the day, a lot of these programs are not designed to make you a better pastor or to help you be a pastor. They're designed to prepare you for doctoral work you know, like citations and paper writing and studying and all these deep things that you're going to have to do at an even harder level as a doctoral student. Even like if, if you look at it from that sense, 
even some of the pastoral things, well, they don't, if it's not counseling, it's not even covering counseling, right. maybe to a deep degree, because depending on the seminary, what value they would give to those things. You look back, man, like what we read, even in this snippet in that Trellis and the Vine book, um, talking about Baxter and that worship Chester society, mm-hmm. like that sort of devotion to the practical ministry and how these pastors used to, some preached in the fields early in the morning before the farmers that were in their community went off, you know, into the fields, uh, like daily. Um, and then some of these pastors went and they had meals and catechized the children of the families and like instructed the fathers how to do that for themselves. There, It was not just giving the sermon or a lecture on Sunday morning. Now, certainly preaching is is very highly regarded for several reasons, but yet there is another level to a shepherd that is not just sort of yelling, you know, to the sheep where to go, right? There's a personal interaction one-on-one or something more so. And if even if that's the goal, there's going to be more to it than just that, not just the academic sense for a pastor. Yeah, and I think it's... This goes without saying, but getting a PhD doesn't mean you're not going to be a good pastor. I mean, obviously that goes that goes without saying. Um, but there is a if again not having gone, but if you're going to consider seminary, you need to be asking yourself why do, why do I want to go for a couple of reasons? Because first you need you need a heart check. You know, you check yourself like, do I want to do this for for good reasons? Do I want to do this because I want to be book smart? Because I want to because I want to be intelligent? And I want to be able to hold my own in a, in a theological debate with somebody? Do I want to be able to, you know, what is it? Or do I want to be able to minister to people well? And even not necessarily in pastoral ministry, you know, do I want to um, have, uh, I want to be better grounded in theology because I see the importance of how theology plays out in a counseling session, you know? Uh, do I want to be better rooted in theology because I'm going to ha- I'm going to teach my kids theology. I want to make sure that I'm teaching them well. Do I want to be better rooted in theology because I want to, um, I don't want to be a, maybe I don't want to be a pastor, but maybe I want to help teach a Sunday school class or something. Maybe I even want to go to seminary uh, and I want to be educated so that maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not a pastor, but if I have a PhD, I can maybe help him do some research and sermon prep. You know, there, there are different ways that that yeah. sort of education. And so your, your priority ought to be whether it's pursuing the PhD or whether it's pursuing a, a pastoral ministry degree or a counseling degree or whatever it is, it ought to be how to best serve others specifically in your local congregation. And you can you have to be careful too because it's common, especially in West Virginia, to denigrate anyone who goes off to higher education, right? And even among the evangelical community, you have people who will say, you know, why would why would you want to go learn about the knowledge of man, mm-hmm. right, instead of the knowledge of God, or why would why would that be a prerequisite for someone going into ministry? And they'll denigrate it that way. But we are called to service and to learn more about Christ. And one of the best and easiest ways, and this will get into my final point here in a second, the best and easiest way currently is to have that be taken care of through seminary. It's a good vetting service, right? Um, that doesn't mean that someone who does not go to seminary is not 10 times smarter than me, because they are. And that does not mean that if you don't go to seminary, you won't miss out on some Gnostic understanding, you know, where you have to go to seminary to understand the truths of Scripture. And if you don't go there, you're not going to get it anywhere else. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that for many young men, 
especially those even older than me, a little bit older, a little bit younger, if you go to seminary and um, submit yourselves to learning the truths of God and, and give that time that's necessary to do so, um, from a humble standpoint, the reward is really great. It's really good. Um, and that gets into my last and final point. It's a doozy. It's, it's a little controversial, but I think it's true. Um, my last one is that you will realize that a lot of the things that seminary gives you, you could and should be done in the local church. So there is, oh gosh, at least 100 years in American history um, that you can pinpoint from um, landing in the Mayflower to the creation of different universities like Brown University and Princeton University and Harvard and all these places that were Christian universities designed um, as seminaries uh, when they first began. Um, and a lot of these these churches that were that were birthed out of that movement, like you already mentioned with Richard Baxter and his um, little community or whatever it was called again, um, those things came directly from the pastor, right? So you would send someone off to learn that so that he could come back and teach the others so that they wouldn't have to go. Because the goal was not to, to take all your young men and send them off, right? It was to grow them up in the church they're already present in the location they've already been placed by God. And unfortunately, especially in American evangelicalism, like I said, you're sent away if you show any type of propensity to learning about the things of God. You're never brought into the church. You're never made, hey, I see you have a fervor. I see you have this really passion to learn about God. Let me bring you in to the church and let's teach you. Let me mentor you and bring you up. That's basically gone. You know, that that service has been delegated now to the seminaries. Mm-hmm. And they, like I said, they do serve a purpose. There are areas all over the world where that's not available because you don't have a Bible-believing pastor or you don't have someone who is willing to take the necessary time to take a young man and train him and show him the ways of God. And so seminaries definitely play a part. I'm not, you know, picketing somewhere I just graduated from by any means. But I think that the overall trajectory should be that in the local church, they should be raising up young men in that context. And you can use seminary sources in that context. You don't have to... um, send them away. The The pastor, hopefully he's trained. He can teach them basically everything I learned if he's well-trained. And yeah, it takes extra time and effort by the pastor, but who else would you want? Who else is going to care for your soul the way a local shepherd should care for your soul? Mm-hmm. And I think specifically in this region, uh, specifically in Appalachia, um, people, so in the state of West Virginia, the numbers are, are pretty clear that you, if you leave West Virginia for education, you don't come back. Yeah. They're, they're, they're pretty, it, it was it like 80 some percent. It's, ridiculous. it's something, it's pretty much guaranteed that if you leave West Virginia for education, you don't come back. Uh, and so in Appalachia, people leave uh, their States, they leave their homes to go to seminary and then they end up pastoring a church that's not in their home. That's not in their hometown. And that's one reason that we, we talk about it a lot. The theological anemia that's, that's here is because there aren't any, theological centers, right? And because ministering to uh, Appalachian Americans is not nearly as attractive. It's not nearly as sexy as city ministry, right? Like city cities are where all of the injustices really happen. Cities are where the real struggle is, but rural Appalachian America, coal country, like they're, they're okay. You know, they're whatever. I mean, all the implications, the Bible Belt. yeah, all, all the implications that come with that, that get my, make my skin crawl, you know, um, uh, whatever they might be. 
um, there's no real desire. No one's no one's sending their best minds here, you know. Um, but if you think, I mean, if you just took a second to think of your top four top four most influential theologians, and just imagine what would happen if they showed up in town to pastor a church, you know, um, like imagine uh, off the top of my head if you had. John MacArthur, man, this would be really wild. If you had John MacArthur and 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 Doug Wilson and John Piper packed up their bags and moved to West Virginia and planted churches and started ministering in the area, you know, like just all the theological richness that comes with them, all of all with their own flaws to be sure, but all the heritage that they would bring and all the theological training and understanding that they would bring to this area would just be, I mean, it, it, it would be culture shock. You know, um, and so the the to your point about it should be done in the local church. Uh, pastors should be doing this because that's how we're going to keep that's how you're going to keep men here. So pastors, if you're if you're listening and you and you want to minister to the area, uh, the way that you minister to Appalachia right now in this uh, this time that we're in, given our culture, uh, the way that you do that is not conferences. The way that you do that is not um, surveys. The way that you do that is not plant church after church after church after church and think, well, I've got all these church plants in my network that have a thousand people that are here. You know, they're an inch deep and a mile wide. You know, that's not how you minister to Appalachia right now. That's not what Appalachians need. What Appalachia needs right now is ministers who are going to take the time to train men to be men and to be men theologically, and to be systematic theologians in the home, and to do it in the church as lay people, and to do it out into the community, and in, in such a microwave world, you know, we think, we, we think we're seeing results, because, man, we've, we've, planted, we've sent and planted four, five, six, seven churches from this network. We've sent and planted, all, we've got all these churches off of all these interstate exits. We've got all of this, like, man, we're really seeing results. We're really seeing results. Give it two generations. Mm-hmm. Give it two generations because you're not giving anybody any roots. You're not giving anybody anything. But take the time, do the work, roll up your sleeves, and just a piece, just if I could just speak personally, but also for the three of us while we're here, uh, young men are hungry for that sort of thing. Young men are starved in our churches for theological training and not just the for the intellectualism but young men are starred for for that sort of shepherding and that sort of soul care that comes that comes with the local church you know so again i mean i just want to keep bringing it back to this region and, and the importance and so if you're a minister in the appalachian region and you want to you want to impact appalachia um minister to the men in your church roll your sleeves up cut any programs that are getting in your way Cut any church, I mean, yeah, cut church planning plans that you might have. Stop planning churches and minister to the men that are in your church. And you're not, you might not see results in your lifetime. Be okay with that and be faithful in the little things that you're doing and train men in theology and train men to love the Bible and train men to love the things of God and watch it just wreak absolute havoc on the powers of darkness that are in the area. true 
Yeah, it is. Uh, try to, there's like 10 things that come to my mind. <laughs> so I try to pick what seems the most pertinent to like bring out. I mean, it, it, for everything you said, it is. And it, thinking from where I was. So when I was like 18 and converted, I mean, I, the little church I went to, there were some absolutely amazing people there that I still not convinced I'll ever have real that meant like a group that was that close because of how difficult it was for us. I mean, that's, that was very unique. Like I've got close friendships like with us now or I'm close to other people. It was such a unique circumstance, but you know, we were there and nobody had like a formal training or something, you know, it was, we're all just kind of trying to study the Bible side by side. And it's a lot of either new or, um, new in terms of knowledge, you know, Christians and trying to study down. I mean, if there would have been someone who, you know, at that time had more knowledge and experience that would have stayed in the area that didn't go out instead, you know, or after that, after we left that place going and trying to find somewhere that, you know, was willing to put in time personally to train, you know, younger guys that had, you know, even if it was an affirmed calling or whatever, just flat out didn't find it, you know, that people are willing to put time in personally to shepherd and, and um, train guys to be elders, you know, even if it wasn't just like the preaching pastor, you know, to be like an elder or minister in the church or whatever. Um, I don't know. It's, it's so sad to me still. I mean, hopefully we're going to see that come about, you know, in the near future. Mm-hmm. But for that not to even be in the area... How can you expect generational things? And, you know, if you think of your kids, I, I don't think it's it's too dissimilar to compare the way a parent should train up their kids to the way a pastor should train up younger people to be leaders in the church either. You know, to have the foresight to say, you know, just like, I mean, Andy the other Wednesday night was like talking about for the Trails and the Vine thing, like he has to train up somebody or some people, so that what if something happens to him? Is the whole church just supposed to fall about apart because there's no lead, that lead pastor dies or moves or you know something they can't control happens? I mean, the church should have more depth than that, and that that man should think of that to be a good steward of the congregation and the opportunities God has given him there at that place. But uh, yeah, it's so incredibly needed, and you know, like you said, you have to go out unless you just stay and deal with and go with what you got. Um, until something better comes along and is here. And in, in some ways, I mean, you look at like Princeton Seminary, my goodness. I mean, the people that were there and their their theological abilities and how much they benefited even readers years later with what they've written and said and all this. I mean, that's kind of an exception. But it's almost like those seminaries are judgments on the local churches in a way yeah. for their lack of, over the time, like we've, we've lost, um, you know, good pastors for our area that have went to be pastors of other places because we didn't have the training here. And that was a lack of foresight from past generations. And until we take steps to correct that, you can't expect depth. You just see people chasing, using attractional means and methods to try and get a bunch of people in the church, you know, and that's how they define success. That's fine. But I mean, real depth mm-hmm. takes time, and we have to have something to counter that. And it takes a mentality shift too, right? Mm-hmm. You, for most churches, you have to 
change a lot to make that happen. You know, to borrow from John Piper's famous seashell analogy, you know, you, when you get to God and you show him your handful of local churches, what's he going to say, right? That, that has no lasting impact. You start with your men and take care of those who are under your shepherding, who are in your care, and then move out beyond that if you want to plant a local church. I'm not denigrating local churches. Those are much needed. But do we need one on every block when the ones that we already have are suffering from internal hemorrhaging? I don't think so. I do not think so. And I also think there's there's a there's a culture in some there's something about here culturally where we people want to want to address things like the uh, like theological anemia and, and the lack of theological understanding and and the way that they want to address it is with these like flash in a pan things like let's take an evening to do like a broad 4000 foot view over this theology right and we'll do like one night and we'll do different types of soteriology we'll look at calvinism we'll look at arminianism and then I'll explain why we're Calvinists, you know, or, or we're going to take uh, we're going to take take a couple days and we'll do a real quick survey on like a Friday and a Saturday. We'll do a couple like a little mini conference on the importance of the scripture or whatever it is. And they do a couple of those throughout the year and think like, yeah, we're addressing it, you know, whatever. But people that are coming to that aren't doing their own their own study. They're not doing their own thing on their own time. And I, a way that you could judge that you're being successful in that is if you're making people hungry for the scriptures, if you're making people hungry for theology and for the things of God, they're going to they're going to come to those things whenever they're able. But they're also going to be doing their own study, and and their own growth. And so I I think there's like a dual a responsibility there. There's a responsibility for the layman, for the church member, um, pick up your books, open them up, and read. And you're not going to understand everything that you read, but it's not about understanding. It's about striving, or it's not about comprehending it completely, but it's about striving to understand the things of God. It's about striving to understand the Word and to understand Christ in order to emulate Him. So a personal responsibility to church churchmen, to church members, is do what you can to study these things. And the thing for pastors is, like I just was saying earlier, roll up your sleeves and be consistent and consistently be hammering things in to the members of your church about the importance of theology and instruct them well and teach them well and do it day in and day out and week in and week out. And don't look for these these quick microwave flash in a pan solutions for an issue in a region that has generations of, ne- of pastoral neglect and theological neglect. I mean, generations and generations and generations of neglect that we're talking about. And we think, oh, one weekend will, one weekend I can give everyone a 4,000 foot view of different eschatological views and that'll be addressing the issue. And that's not addressing the issue. And it's something that I'm, we all are just, just super passionate about. And like I said earlier, I don't think I can reiterate it enough. Um, is that guys, specifically men, are hungry, for, whether they realize it or not, are hungry for this sort of thing. And this is the kind of thing that we, that, that guys want, and it's the sort of thing that men need. And if you want to, if you want to minister to Appalachians, that's that's the way you do. Is roll up your sleeve. We're a blue collar people. We're a hardworking people. Roll up your sleeves, strap up your boots, and do the hard work, and then die, and don't see any fruit from it. And there's going to be fruit, 
but just die being content that you don't see any of that fruit from your life of hard work. Mm-hmm. Be content with that, you know? Y'all get me fired up when we hear eight hours. That's right. And there's, you know, there will be growing pains from that too mm-hmm. as people change. And I think there's a tendency, at least what I've seen, for young men who do grab onto that fervor, they do grab onto that passion for men to be like, okay, let's calm down. Mm-hmm. They'll put a brick on your head. You're growing too fast here. Instead of showing them how to grow and showing them the changes that they're noticing in their beliefs and theology and guiding them in the way they need to be raised up, instead we're telling them, you're doing this all wrong. You need to calm down, play, be in the shadows. When you're older, give it 20 years. When you're more mm-hmm. mature, that's when you can start to flourish. But right now, just you know, stay here and time out. And as if 20 unguided years in the shadows would accomplish anything. Right. I mean, what? I mean, who even thinks that? Yeah. <laughs> was that what was really done for them? I mean, mm-hmm. that doesn't make any sense. You just step back and look at the way some of these people approach this stuff. I, I don't think you necessarily question them if you're standing right beside of them, but if you right. could some way be removed from it or see it impersonally. Because, I mean, these people can be nice, godly people, but it doesn't mean that every area of their practice is going to be good. Right. I mean, there's certainly many errors in what we all think and do. And... I don't know. I mean, someone can speak nicely or sweetly or softly and still not be correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of truths. That was just a few. Mm-hmm. Um, pull it out from my seminary experience. Hopefully they've been helpful or at least some things to chew on and think about um, as the days go by. So thanks. Thanks.